Coming up on Philosophy Talk, Gandhi as a philosopher. I have never made a statement that the masses of India, if it became necessary, would resort to violence. Gandhi articulated nonviolence as a philosophy. He practiced nonviolence as a leader. He changed history through civil disobedience. I regard myself as a soldier, though a soldier of peace. I know the value of discipline and truth. Gandhi's philosophy of brahmacharya meant control of the senses in thought, word, and deed. The safest course is to believe in the moral government of the world and therefore in the supremacy of the moral law, the law of truth and love. Our guest is Akhil Bilgrami from Columbia University. Gandhi, the philosopher, coming up on Philosophy Talk after the news. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Today, Gandhi as philosopher. Mahatma Gandhi was a great spiritual and political leader. He was father of the Indian independence movement. He was the man who preached and practiced nonviolence, and he inspired millions around the world, including America's own apostle of nonviolence, Martin Luther King. But you don't usually think of Gandhi as a philosopher. But he was, John. He was certainly all the things you just mentioned, and he was, uh, but he was also a profound philosophical thinker. Now, he wasn't an academic philosopher like you and me, but he certainly wrote a lot that could be called philosophy. Academic philosophers like us will find his philosophical writings frustrating, at least at times. But when you realize that Gandhi's spirituality, his approach to politics, and his philosophical outlook are all interconnected, then you realize that if you want to understand this phenomenon, the phenomenon of Gandhi, you also have to understand his philosophical outlook. So let's have a taste of Gandhi as philosopher and how that might help us better understand Gandhi, the spiritual and political phenomenon. Well, take Gandhi's views about morality. You might think that the leader of nonviolent non-cooperation, as he liked to call it, would be big on morally condemning his opponents and would be constantly claiming the moral high ground. Well, most revolutionaries do tend to criticize the old order as morally problematic, even morally bankrupt. Well, I'm not sure it's completely fair to call Gandhi a revolutionary. He didn't lead an armed rebellion like most revolutionaries. And he and many of his followers were willing to be killed, but they weren't willing to kill. Well, I guess the term revolutionary does tend to connote violence, so I'm not sure we have a good word for exactly what Gandhi was in our, in our lexicon. But, but back to your point about Gandhi and morality. Surely, though, he thought that he had morality on his side. Well, Gandhi was a deeply principled man who constantly strove to be on the side of morality. But he wasn't big on claiming to know the absolute moral truth. And he actually thought that the ethical condemnation of one's opponent was itself a form of violence, and he rejected all forms of violence. I don't, I, I don't get it. If you have morality on your side, what's so bad about claiming that you do? Isn't that just stating what you believe to be true? Well, first about the truth. Gandhi had a very complicated view about truth. He believed that there is such a thing as absolute truth. And he felt that he was on a quest to know the absolute truth. But he also thought that the quest for truth was unending and uncertain. Only God knows the absolute truth. 
And it's a form of arrogance to claim to have the absolute truth on your side in disputes among humans. We humans only know what Gandhi called relative truth. So Gandhi was a relativist then? Is that why he rejected moral condemnation as a form of violence? I mean, relativists, after all, promote tolerance of competing points of view and competing moral outlooks? Well, but relativists don't really believe in absolute truth, even as the elusive object of an unending quest like Gandhi did. So Gandhi was an absolutist, but some absolutists think they have a firm grip on the absolute truth. Under the illusion that they alone know the absolute truth, they lord it over those who disagree with them. Gandhi never pretended to know the absolute truth and didn't lord it over anyone. Now, now, now we got started down this road when you said Gandhi rejected criticizing the behavior of others. He saw that as a form of violence, you said. I, I'm still not sure I understand, Joe. Well, look at it from the perspective of the opponent. If you constantly criticize your opponent, he'll see it as an attack. Perhaps not as an attack on his physical person, but an attack on something that might be more important, more important, his spiritual person. And that will put your opponent on the defensive. Well, if you put it that way, I grant that moral condemnation is a kind of attack, but isn't it only an attack in a metaphorical sense? I mean, why should we think of moral condemnation as literally and truly a form of violence? Well, violence takes many forms, not just physical. There's economic violence, cultural violence. Even in our professional philosophy, there's a certain kind of bullying in print that's sort of violent. Think of moral condemnation as just another form of violence, and Gandhi rejected all forms of violence. Complicated man, that Gandhi, and a complicated thinker, too. I'm still not sure that what it all adds up to. I'm in the same boat, Ken. Fortunately, we'll be joined by a man who has thought long and hard about Gandhi, Akhil Bilgrami, author of Gandhi the Philosopher. And we'd also like to invite you, our listeners, to plumb the philosophical depths of this complex spiritual and political leader. The number is one 800 525 You're listening to an encore presentation of Philosophy Talk. The phone lines are closed. But first, our roving philosophical reporter, Polly Stryker, talks to someone who's been using elements of Gandhi's philosophy to solve real-world problems. She files this report. It's no coincidence that Gandhi's grandson wrote the foreword to the book that explains nonviolent communication, or NVC. According to Arun Gandhi, his grandfather stressed the need to communicate nonviolently because he saw passive violence, the kind brought about by harsh judgmental words, as being an underlying cause of physical violence. You're so selfish. That's John Kenyon, mediator and co-founder of the Bay Area Center for Nonviolent Communication, which is an approach developed by psychologist Marshall Rosenberg 40 years ago. NVC involves choosing to hear people's unmet needs beneath hostile language, like what you just heard. So instead of stomping my foot and shouting, I am not selfish, I might hear, I have a need for consideration, for care of others that isn't being met. And I could focus on that as what the person is saying, instead of getting caught up in reacting defensively to a, a criticism. It's the idea of seeing our interdependence. If others' needs aren't being met, then my needs aren't being met. Nonviolence isn't a technique to be used when you need it. And it's not being passive. It's really a philosophical worldview, based in compassion and connection. And Gandhi didn't create it. He adopted the Hindu concept ahimsa, or doing no harm, and took it to new heights. It's one thing to, to be loving and caring and kind to people, but can I do it when others are not being kind at all to me, or the opposite of kind and loving and uh, cruel and oppressive? Can I still have love for that person? 
and nonviolent communication gives a way to do that by seeing the human needs that someone might be trying to meet, but in a very tragic way, in a very destructive way. If you think this sounds touchy-feely, think again. NVC is used all over the world, in Israel and the Palestinian Authority, in Rwanda, with at-risk teens, between family members. John Kenyon wanted to do something positive after 9-11, so he went to a refugee camp in Pakistan filled with Afghan tribal members. He wanted to teach them nonviolent communication. I believe that if we don't all come together and work together to solve these problems, from the local to the, to the global, I don't think we're going to make it. He was talking with elders from different tribes. Some of them wanted to invite him to mosque, others didn't. They started to fight. They were talking in terms of judgments of what's right and wrong and good and bad and the way it should be or shouldn't be, and maybe criticizing the other side. And I just kept translating that and hearing what their, what their needs were. After much listening, John identified that one group wanted to show him hospitality. The other wanted respect for their tradition of Islam. And then I turned to the whole group after we got the needs on both sides, and I said, so does anybody in the room not share all of these needs, the needs for connection and sharing and hospitality and the needs for safety and protection and honoring traditions and practices? There was kind of a stunned silence for a second. And then they all started smiling and nodding, and you could see that everyone was getting that they all had those needs. It wasn't really, at that level, there was no conflict. He suggested they work together to get all their needs met. One idea was to have John sit outside the mosque and hear the service, but that didn't work for everyone. So what was the resolution? The last solution was to have someone sit with us that could explain what was going on in the mosque and uh, what was happening, and we could see and be really right part of it, but we'd still be outside the door and not inside. The tribal elders recognized how John had teased out their common ground. They laughed and clapped and talked together for a long while. And maybe, just maybe, the seed of a nonviolent way to communicate was planted. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Polly Stryker. You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.